Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Trivesh K., Nick W., Jackie A., and Ryan S. Julian Tapp has joined us on the show today. Julian is Chief Nuclear Officer at Vimy Resources, a Australian-focused uranium project developer advancing the Mulga Rock project in Western Australia. The company is listed on the Australian Securities Exchange under the symbol VMY and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol VMRSF. Mr. Tapp, welcome to the show and how are you, sir? Thank you. I'm very well indeed and very pleased to be on your show. Just for the audience, uh, Julie and I had met back in June 2019 at the AUSIM 2019 Uranium Conference, so it's good to have him on and to finally chat. But Julian, let's kick it off here. Maybe just start out with giving your thoughts on the broad uranium market at this stage, what we've seen over the last few months with COVID, and what do you see coming up next for the sector? Well, look, you know, I, I mean, I think for, for the uranium market, Overall, I mean, we all accept it's been in the doldrums for quite a while. I actually think it it kind of reached a bottom around the end of 2016, and it has actually been slowly creeping up since then, but with pretty large gyrations. Seems to be um, a piece of news comes out, it goes up, it loses momentum, and then it stalls and goes back down again. But each time it's gone down, it's gone up a bit. Um, so we we had a an increase um, earlier this year, got up near 35, it's got back down, it's stabilized at, at just under $30 a pound. Um, and now we're in that sort of, you know, and, it, and this obviously is just the spot market. Um, we're in that strange situation where, um, you know, I guess it's just waiting for some more news to drive it around. But at the same time, and, and probably separately to that, there seems to have been, um, at least very recently, quite a lot of interest in uh, uranium equities as opposed to the uranium price. And that looks a little bit divorced from the uranium market, at least as far as the spot market is going. And let's be clear, the contract market is is feeding very little information whatsoever at the moment. And that, that interest in uranium equities look appears to be coming from a, if you like, a change in view about uranium equities. You know, they've been considered you know, a poor stock for some time, but now there seems to be some money flowing into it, whether it's the, you know, the Democrats looking more favorably on uh, nuclear power, whether it's the Uranium Strategic Reserve, whether it's ESG money flowing into uranium. You know, there's a whole host of factors that are put up for why, why it's gone up, but we have had a, a good burst recently. And that seems to be different from uh, you know, what's driving the uranium spot price. So it's, it's, it's an interesting time. And, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing how it develops. So we've had a series of recently COVID-related issues, the shutdown of the mines, um, the stopping of production, uh, or the development of well fields for Kazatomprom. And we've had Cigar Lake come back on and now go off again. And 
And it'd be interesting to see what the spot market does in response to this most recent announcement of the closure of um, Cigar Lake again for an undetermined period of time. But I'm assuming it's going to be a couple of months. Good points and a lot of things there. But uh, I'd like to see first, let's see if we can break prior highs. Uh, I want to say 2016, we, we saw a number of equities reach some highs and we haven't quite broken out from that high level, you know, looking back here over this whole trend in the market. So that'll be a key thing to watch as far as seeing the equities uh, rise to all time highs since 2016. Some have, many haven't. And the cigar debacle had a restart that was attempted and it was in ramp up stages. And then all of a sudden this recent news events happen. And so I think there is a motivation by Cameco to keep Cigar going. It, it makes a lot of sense for them economically, but we've seen them try to get it going again quite rapidly as we saw earlier this year. So I think that's an important piece of the puzzle for them to piece together. And then, you know, the last thing too with CSR, now ESG, I'd like to modify ESG and add an E in front and call it EESG for economic, environmental, social governance. I think the economic portion of is not thought about. Anyway, so it's an interesting set of circumstances and how this is uh, coming about in the market. Well, Julian, let's talk your time and experience in the natural resource sector. You definitely have some background there and then also in uranium, but go ahead and give us your background and experience in this sector and also just the broad natural resource sector. So I'm not originally from the mining sector. Uh, I'm an economist by training, and um, after kind of working in universities for a while, I, I worked in industry. So um, I was actually the chief economist for Ford's operation in Europe, and then I uh, worked in the oil industry. I was an economist for BP, and then I worked in the aerospace sector, and I was an economist for British Aerospace. My wife is from Perth, and I ended up moving to Perth in 2003 and looked for work and, and really in Perth mining's that you know, the sector to be in. And I found a job in, in the iron ore industry with what was then a startup company um, called Fortescue Metals Group. So I joined them in 2004 and I, I worked for them till 2012 and did a whole load of things for them, approvals, um, legal stuff, basically whatever they wanted me to do. And then um, I left them in 2012 and joined Vimy in 2013. I joined Vimy partly because Mike Young was also looking at Vimy. He was interested in me joining him. We kind of looked at the uranium prospect and said, well, you know, Margaret Rock looked like a very good project, um, but we all know that uranium projects kind of have a have a bit of a handicap, which is they have to get through their approvals and that can be quite difficult. I have some expertise in doing approvals. So I joined Mike and, and we got the approval. So we got the primary approvals for the, for all the environments signed off by the minister in December 2016. And, and since then, I've just been going through the secondary approvals and, and helping Mike with um, kind of marketing and the general selling the story. I mean, and look, so my background also is, I'm not only an economist, but I am actually a, a firm believer in nuclear power um, for lots of reasons. And I've done the work on this, but the carbon emissions associated with nuclear power on a full life cycle basis are much lower um, than anybody gives credit for. So the, the, the IPCC in their last report, I think they penciled in 12 grams per kilowatt hour for nuclear on a life cycle basis, and they had wind at 11, which put nuclear right down next to wind. 
I looked at their calculations and read all the papers that supported that, and they've massively overestimated the carbon emissions associated with nuclear. Um, and the reasons are, I mean, you know, they, they, they penciled in too many emissions for uranium mining because they looked at conventional mining and didn't even consider in situ leach mining. They looked at the, if you like, the upgrade, the enrichment process and had it drop, driven by the wrong technology, out-of-date technology. So basically the answer is that, that for nuclear, it's less than six grams. Um, so nuclear is about half of wind um, and a lot lower than solar PV. So in a world where, you know, whether you like it or not, um, we're moving towards net zero by 2050 in lots of countries. But against that sort of political impetus, you know, nuclear is going to have a, I hate to use the word renaissance because it was used before and it never happened, but nuclear just has to be part of the mix if you want to control carbon emissions and you want to do it cheaply and you want to have reliable power. And, you know, all the information that those who are against nuclear power feed out there, all that information is kind of based on cherry picking the data and presenting the wrong picture of it. I'll give you another example. It's when you look at the length of time it takes to construct a nuclear power plant, they throw into their average calculations nuclear plants that were started in the 80s and then stopped for 20 years and then restarted again. They say the average length of time to build a nuclear reactor is like nine years or something like that. Well, it, it is if you take an average. But if you actually look at countries like Japan and China and Korea that have had a successful record in building nuclear reactors, the length of time it takes them to build a nuclear reactor is about five years, and it was when they started doing them in the 70s, and it's still about five years when they when they try and build one now. You know, and one of the reasons why people think nuclear's uneconomic is the, the notion that you can't build them on time and on schedule and the capital costs will blow out and you'll lose money so nobody will going to build one. And that's just a misrepresentation of, of what's likely to happen. And, and, you know, and that's partly why there's a lot of enthusiasm around now for small modular nuclear reactors because they should put an end to the, the, the risk that is associated with very large nuclear reactors. And I'm not denying there isn't, there, there isn't a risk. I mean, the, the French nuclear program, the EPR that they're building in Finland and France and, and in the UK, I mean, all of them are in same technology. They're all in trouble because they're going to take a really long time to build. You know, I, I genuinely think when you get small modular reactors constructed in the factory, transported to site, and then assembled there with all the back end and everything, it's not quite as modular as people think it might be, but you know, the construction risk and the cost risk is going to be massively controlled by that type of approach to building nuclear reactors. So for lots of reasons, I'm, I'm really enthusiastic about nuclear. I, I just think it's, it's the way to go. Yeah, we've done a lot of work on it as well, and I fully agree with your points. As long as stupidity and idiot politics don't get in the way of it, I do believe that it'll work extremely well as SMRs roll out. Now, if bureaucracy and red tape get involved, we know that that can stymie such advancements like SMRs, which make a lot of sense. And, uh, we'll see how that goes as you know companies like New Scale in the U.S. and Rolls-Royce and, and so forth get going on their different models. And you're absolutely right. Wind and solar is silly. It's really silly. And I'm glad you used full life cycle basis because that's the only thing that matters. When you add that in and you talk about the benefits and drawbacks of uranium mining, obviously upstream, and then all the way down to waste disposal 
on the downstream end. You know, you have to look at all of those costs. You have to also look at the benefits. Mining brings a lot of economic benefits, more so than environmental impacts, much more. Of course, somewhere between there, you need responsible and proper prudent mining means and methods. Well, Julian, let's move on. Let's get into Vemi here. Give us just a quick one-minute overview of the company for the audience. Okay, so Vimy, we've got two projects. One is Mulga Rock. It's about 90 million pounds in the ground in a very arid region in Western Australia in the middle of nowhere. It was originally found by Japanese uh, and we acquired it, some, you know, of entity that was predated has acquired it a long time ago. We've developed it up to a project that's ready to go. Um, it's, it's capable of producing about three and a half million pound a year for, a, for at least 15 years. Um, and and look, you know we've we've done a DFS and we've done a DFS refresh. We're very confident in the numbers around the cost of production, the cash cost of production, um, about twenty six dollars a pound. That's cash costs. There's a bit of sustaining capital takes it up over thirty, um, and that's for the, for the life of the project. We have another project which is in the Northern Territory. It has a small resource. Um, Angularly is about twenty six million pounds of uranium in the ground, but that's a, a tier one asset. And by that, I mean, this is an asset that if it's bought into production would make money even in, in the worst downtown of the market. That's, that's what I mean by a tier one asset. So it's not huge, but the cost of production, the capital cost up front and everything are a first quartile type mine. So those are our two projects. And that, look, to be honest, and I guess it's an important point, it distinguishes us from some others. We are genuinely a uranium company. We're not kind of like trying to get rare earths or anything else, you know, to get people interested in the, in the company. At the same time, we actually have got base metals at Margaret Rock. And look, if the, if, the, if the base metals make sense, we will develop them and include them in the production. But we, we, we've, we've never been chasing anything other than uranium. We, we are a ultimate uranium company, uh, but won't overlook, you know, byproduct credits if they're available. Yeah, I think that makes sense, Julian. And I think also that, look, if I want copper exposure, I want gold exposure. There's plenty of other fine companies out there that are focused on that. If I want uranium exposure, we're here for uranium. Quite frankly, we don't give a damn about the other materials because we know we can go focus on companies who are doing that type of work. And there's plenty of them out there, of course, which we cover other sectors here as well, not just uranium. But let's talk a little bit more about the projects in a moment, Julian. But let's start out getting into the capital structure here. Yeah, sure. So, look, yep. no debt, uh, 778 million shares on issue. Um, the price was about five and a half cents earlier today. I don't know where it closed. That values the company at, you know, 40, about 43 million. Um, and in terms of who owns the company, uh, it's about half retail investors. We've got a couple of big shareholders, which is Paradise Investments and Forest Family Investments. Both hold just under 10%. And then we've got a variety of institutional investors and high net worths that hold most of the rest of the stock. But as I said, so cash on hand at the 30th of September, we had about five and a half million. And as I said, no debt. And look, if I keep saying it, it's because when I first joined Vimy, you know, I had a heap of debt. I had a whole lot of convertible notes, had a terrible share structure with most of the equity owned by one or two large players. And, and it was just really difficult to convince anybody to invest money. 
you know, and all of that's turned around. We have a well-balanced holding. Um, we don't have any debt. I mean, when, when I first joined the company and Mike and I had to raise some money, you know, nobody wanted to put it in because they were worried that it would just go to the debt holders and, and they'd lose their money. So, you know, nice, nice, well-balanced portfolio. And I, I might say a reasonable amount of volume now. I mean, that's the other thing. Lots of investors, you know, looked at Vimy and it's like, oh, well, you know, we kind of like it. But, you know, if we buy a chunk, we could never get out again because there's no volume. Now we've got the volume as well. So in terms of the kind of capital structure, it might not be perfect, but it's a hell of a lot better than it used to be. And and we're still working now on, on improving it. And Julian, talk about maybe some of the institutionals there. Has there been any interest, and maybe they're already shareholders, I'm not familiar with it, but is there any interest or maybe do you guys have interest in bringing in some of these other specialty uranium funds like Tribeca, like Sachem Cove, Segra? into the share roster or maybe they're already there yeah look there has been some interest they and some of them have come in and and left again you know i think that a lot of them are interested in kind of like you know playing the you know playing the sudden ramp up i think the, the big investors we've got in at the moment are in it for the long haul they they kind of understand that you know i mean i think and i, and I look I, I think it's one it's one of the things that annoys me i mean vimy seems to me incredibly undervalued on the fundamentals we we have a great project um and and i look and i'm not in the business of knocking anybody else's project i just think that 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 one of the things that distinguishes us from others and that makes long-term investors interested in us is that we all know that when the price goes up um there are a lot of uranium entities out there that will just rise with the tide and um but they, you know, then they're, they're unlikely to ever get their projects into production. I mean, they're a good play for somebody who wants to invest in a uranium stock, see it rise when the prices rise, and then get out again. But we fundamentally believe that our project is good enough so that when the tide rises, this is a this is a boat that'll sail. You know, we're going to leave the harbour because when we get the right price, we're all ready to go. And that's and again, it's really important to understand this from our perspective. It's like, you know, we considered, or oh, should should Vimy stick the project in the freezer and just wait for the price to recover? Yeah, that's a strategy. But my view is if you stick your project in the freezer and wait for the prices to recover, when they do recover, it's going to take you longer to get out of the freezer than it, than, than it's necessary to meet the contracts when the price is up. Once you're in there, once you've put everything on ice, you know, when the price spikes, utilities aren't going to write contracts with a, an entity that's been in the freezer for the last two years and says, well, give me a contract and I'll get out and get into production three, maybe four years. It just doesn't work that way. You kind of have to be ready to go when the price comes. And and that's been our strategy. So we're, we're continuing to get everything ready. We're continuing to talk to utilities. The price isn't there right now, but gee, you know, we we can smell it. It's It's gonna come and we'll be ready to go. And that's a, that to me, that's a, a major distinguishing feature for, for Vimy, that we will be ready to go. And on the cash front, how far do you see the current cash carrying the company forward at this stage? And do you guys expect to raise capital in 2021? Yes, we would have to. So, you know, people may look at us and go, well, you know, gee, as you say, well, why didn't you just put it in the freezer? But one of the things that we've done is, and we had to do was, 
We had to get all the approvals for our project. We had to get the mining leases granted. We had to get everything done to make sure that we could keep the right to the tenure and keep the approvals in place. And we actually have quite high holding costs that we pay to the government in terms of rents and rates and, you know, just for holding the land that we've got. And look, you know, if you're not in the freezer, you know, you and you've got a good workforce and a good team and you want to keep them doing stuff. So we've done a DFS refresh. We've sent a team up to the Northern Territory, only very small to do cheap kind of geophysics and, and term, termitaria sampling and everything else. We want to keep progress going, manage the cash as best we can. We have to spend some of that money on it. We have an instalment to Cameco that, that paid for the Northern Territory land coming up. Yeah, look, the cash will last until the middle of next year. We might be able to eke it out a bit further. But let's put it like this. We couldn't, with our current burn, get to the end of next year without raising more money. Having said that, it, it all depends. It's no secret we've... We've got the feelers out to look for partners that might want to invest in both the Mulga Rock project and the Alligator River project. The idea is to get is to get partners in who'll fund kind of fund some of the work, particularly the Alligator River. We'd like we we'd like to keep developing that. And if somebody wants to farm into it, we've got KPMG running a process for us. They're having a look at both operations and seeing what interest there is in in partnering up with us. Maybe that's one way we can fund operations without further diluting the, the, the shareholders. Yeah, that sounds good. And as you know, the share price has come down over the years. And the most recent capital raises, if I have my info correct, uh, when I reviewed here when preparing was about five cents. Uh, you guys did a capital raise in October 2019 and then about three and a half cents in June 2020. Going forward here, Julian, if the incentive price to bring the financing to the table and to get this project underway, if that incentive price doesn't happen in 2021, will you guys look to reduce costs to keep things tight while you guys wait for the correct market conditions to finance the project and transition into potential cash flows? Yes. At the end of the day, we'll do everything we can. I mean, you look, we've done quite a lot to cut costs. But as I explained to you, there's some some of the holding costs, like the, the rents and dividends we pay, you know, it's like 800000 a year to, to keep a tenement in good standing. And you just can't avoid that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm currently on two days a week for Vimy. Um, quite a lot of our people are on, you know, reduced hours to try and eke the money out further. And we're always looking at ways that we can reduce cost and do things differently to, to, to make the money go further. Let's talk about the key people, obviously, besides yourself. Talk about the Vimy management team and the board. And then, you know, how do you believe that this management team and board stacks up against some of your pure management teams and boards? Well, look, <laughs> let's, let's start at the top. Mike Young, managing director. Look, I've known him for a really long time. Um, he was he was what got me into Vimy. Um, and look, and I think that if I had to to pick a defining feature, um, other than I just, he's a really great guy. It's that he's he's actually taken a concept mine, you know, a piece of moose pasture in the middle of nowhere out in the Pilbara and, and a hope and converted that into a $800 million company that was that was paying dividends and exporting iron ore. And, and it's that sort of greenfield experience that I just don't think any of our peers, any of our peers have come close to. So, and it's like, 
it's a mindset. I mean, you're, you're, you're not about pumping this thing up to, to make it look attractive. You're, we're about making sure we get it ready to go into production. Now, whether you get taken over or you do it yourself, it's the same it's the same thing that you need to do. You need to push it. In. I mean, that's one of the first things that Mike and I had a conversation when I first joined with him. It was like, look, whatever happens, whether we get this into production or get taken over by somebody, the best strategy is to get this project into production. It's, you know, stop drilling, stop looking for a bigger resource because, you know, the reason why when we joined Vimy, it was so undervalued was because, it just looked so far away from production. It was, it was viewed as risky. The way you make the, you increase the value is getting it close to production, not getting the tons and pounds in the ground bigger, but the, getting it to the point where people can say, oh, yeah, that could go into production. So, so Mike was the right guy for that. Now I have to mention Scott Hyman, who's, who's based in the US, knows the market better than most, and from both sides, sell side and, sell side and buy side. And and I don't think and lots of people don't understand this that the the U.S. market might be almost thirty percent of of global demand for for uranium for nuclear power plants, but it's it's considerably more than fifty percent of the market the accessible market for a company that's looking to finance its uh, finance its project by writing long term offtake contracts. When I say accessible markets, you know. We're, ne we're never going to get a contract with Russian utilities for supply of uranium. They've got enough of their own. We're not going to get contracts with Chinese off-takers that are contractually financeable. So there's quite a lot of the market that you that you can't access if you want to um, write contracts and then have a bank say, yeah, I'll lend you the money for your project because I can see that the off-take party's got a good balance sheet and a good reputation and will stand by their contracts. So... So having Scott in the US able to go around, visit utilities on a regular basis, understand them. I mean, we're at the point where we talk to the utilities and Scott does talk to them. We we respond to their requests for, for, for prices and quotes. We understand what they, work, they want. We work with them. We're not quite there because the price they want to buy at and are able to buy it at the moment is is below what we can sell it at, but we can see that the that gap can be closed quite rapidly when the market turns. So so Scott's absolutely essential. And then look, I gotta give a cheer for some of the rest of the team that don't get a mention much. We have a um our manager of geology, Xavier, he's just so knowledgeable. I, I couldn't have got the approvals as quickly as I have without being able to access his knowledge and understanding, not only of uranium mining and the uranium market, but but also just all the environment that, that goes around it, his understanding of the conditions. And, um, and then, you know, we've got, we've, we've got a great team. Um, Tony Chamberlain very, did our DFS for us, still with us as a director, understands, you know, the kind of the processing side of it incredibly well. And, you know, Marcel Hilmer, our CFO, has got a lot of experience. But I, I've also got to mention just the overall team, you know, we, we get, we're a small group. We get things done efficiently and fast. We keep our eye on new technology. You know, we're looking at ore sorting, for example, um, radioactive ore sorting to reduce the cost at the alligator because that, you know, to reduce the mining cost. We're, you know, we've, our team off their own bat took the cameras up to the Northern Territory 
to do some environmental surveys while they're up there doing exploration work to try and compress the approvals time. So we have a lot of people, not a lot of people, the people that work for us have a lot of experience um, and they're empowered and we allow them to put in place measures that will make us do things more efficiently and faster and, and better. And, I, and if I had to stress anything, that's it. It's the, the team that's kind of, we're all people who know what we're doing. We know uranium. We know how to get mines into production. We just need the price. Let's move into Mulgarak. You've done a revised definitive feasibility study, and you guys have a schedule presently showing production in early 2024, Julian. Just yeah. talk about the current status, your guys' plan to move forward here on the timing, the remaining permitting that you need to get. Talk about the time frame, and obviously uh, with this schedule right now, you guys will have to do the construction financing package. I want to talk about that specifically in a moment, but just talk about the plan from here on timing and remaining permitting and so forth to get you to that schedule early 2024 production. Yeah, it's real easy. We we need the price to get to a level where we can write the uh, the long-term contracts that we need from the utilities to be able to finance this. So let us assume that that happens early next year. We can write contracts. And let me wind back. So so one of my jobs is getting is doing the approval from getting all the permitting. One of the problems I face is the government just doesn't see a need to do them in a hurry when they can see that we, we don't have contracts in place to push the button. You know, it's like, why are you, why are you hurrying us up? You're not ready. So we've done the permitting to get the primary approvals. We've done a lot of the permitting to get the secondary approvals. And it's my job to get them and get them quickly. But I don't have any leverage without a contract to be able to say to the government, you do realize that you know there are these jobs and there are these potential exports and these royalties but more probably more important than anything else it's these jobs they would like to see get into production and, and so that create that employment and generate incomes for families and they don't see that on the horizon so and and look lots of people um talk ambiguously about um permitting i, I just i just kind of like want to explain exactly what we've got so to, to get a, a mine like this into production, you have to get the minister to agree that the environmental impact is acceptable. We did that. We got the ministerial sign-off in December 2016, at least at the state level, and the federal government followed a month or two later. But that's, and if you like, the overarching approval that says, I've looked at all the things you're going to do, and I've considered their impacts on the environment, and, yeah, it's acceptable subject to a certain conditions. You have to do it in the way that I've described and you're limited it. So let's take, let's say we have to dewater the mine. So our ore sits just below the, the water table. So when we want to mine it, we strip off the overburden and then you send dedicated equipment in to, to mine the uranium ore, but it's below the water table at the moment. So before you get down to that level, you've dewatered the mine, sunk the water table below so that it's dried out a bit and you can get the equipment in there and and unmined uranium ore. Now, when we got the overall environmental approval, it was, hey, yes, I understand you're going to do some mine dewatering. I've had a look at the impact of that. I agree that you can do that mine dewatering if you if you do it subject to the following conditions. We can't exceed two and a half gigalitres per year. You know, what we do with the water is controlled. We have to monitor its quality. We have to put it back where we say you can put it back. 
So all of that, and all of that's been approved. But now under our regulations, if you want to construct dewatering equipment, facilities, the pipelines and everything else, that's a different approval. And what you have to do is you have to get works approval for it, and then you have to get a license to operate it. And the way it operates is you tell them what you're going to do, and then they go away and they check against what the minister approved and what the conditions attached were and say, oh, yes, what you're now specifically saying you're going to do meets with what the minister said you can do and the conditions applied to it. And that isn't done by political people. That's done by bureaucrats. So, so when we talk about primary and secondary approvals, the primary approvals were like the political ones and the secondary approvals are the, if you like, the bureaucrats to check against the primary approval and they tick a box and say, yes, 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 yes. Okay, it's yours. Now, you wouldn't believe how many secondary approvals they are, but there's something often that you need to get through the entire life of the mine. So when people say, have you got all the approvals necessary to start? It's like, yes, but have you got all the approvals necessary to complete the life of the project? No, because I'm going to be getting them for the rest of the project life. So going back to the example I gave you of dewatering, I dewater the area where I'm mining. And then when I finished, I moved to another deposit. Well, I've got to get new works approval and new license for that new area. And I'll keep doing that for the, for the entire 15 years that the mine life is operating, all the time doing it under the umbrella of the overall ministerial approval on the conditions that came with it. So, yes, we've got the permits we need. Um, and so we've done the ministerial condition, we've conditions, um, we've submitted our mine plan and our mine closure plan, and they're currently under review. And we've got a works approval that's just about to go in. And after that, we'll have to do the licenses. But I'm not, I'm not worried. We're, we're past the ones where, you know, a politician can say, actually, I, I don't like uranium mining, so I've decided not to approve that. That's gone. We're past that. Understood, Julian. And the community work, um, how, how is the community? Obviously, there's probably not much community directly at the project, but uh, how is the community work? And do you guys have local support as well? So uh, yes and uh, yes and yes, you're right. There isn't much of a local community. So we we are in we're on the edge of a desert. The only reason there's a road to where we are is because there's another mine a bit further out than us, the Tropicana Joint Venture Gold Deposit. We drive up there. To give you some idea, you 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 go to Kalgoorlie, which is like 800 miles inland from Perth, and then you you drive. It's another 240 kilometers, just heading out beyond where anybody lives. We're in a part of the country that's never had farming. There's not enough water. And Aboriginal people have never actually lived on that particular bit of land because it's just sand dunes with no water. There's, there's just, and, and people don't get it. It's like when we're trying to get the approvals in Australia, you, you, you want to build anything, you have to get a bed, beds and banks permit, which is like anywhere where water flows, it might have, made a dent in the ground you have to get a permit to disturb that we we don't have to do any there's there's no surface water flow where we are it's just sand dunes so when it rains the water goes into the sand it collects in clay clay areas where where very large puddles effectively develop but they only last for a few days and then they disappear so there's no real aboriginal people from the area where our mine is but we know the aboriginal people from the areas further away where they, there is water and that people have, do live and travel and, and have done in the past and we have a great relationship with them 
we look, and it was like one of the first things I did when I joined Vimy was, okay, let's talk to the local Aboriginal people. You know, they were in line with us, which is basically, we're going to develop this project. And when we do, there's going to be jobs for your people. And that's exactly what they wanted. And, you know, I even said to them, look, we, you don't need a, we don't need to sign an agreement about me giving you jobs. I want your people working on our project and you want your relatives, sons, everybody you know, to have the opportunity of an employment. You know, it's a win-win here. And look, so we've we've always had a good relationship with the Aboriginal people that, that have a claim to that area. So that there's no, you know, you stick a pin in our mine and look for any resident. No, no residents within 100 kilometres. Talk about the uh, the financing part of things. You mentioned, you know, the contract, uh, the need of a contract, some type of offtake um, to be able to get the rest of the financing. Can you talk about what you guys need for an initial price and the type of contract you're looking for to get with the financing package? And then also what percentage or what would you guys like to see in terms of size to get the financing package going? And then also, can you just talk about, you know, the debt and the equity side of that financing package, assuming you guys have a contract of some type in hand? Yeah, look, I don't think there's a, there's a definitive answer to that. What we know is to get to get the Mulga Rock project going, we need, at the moment, the capital investment is about 250 million US dollars. Look, once you work out what our cash operating cost is, our all-in sustaining capital cost, then you add on top of that the that the, that financing that 250 million. Some of it's going to be debt. Some of it's going to have to be a there's going to be an equity injection or a part strategic partner coming in. Somebody's going to have to put a bit of unless unless the share price look the share price recovers and you know our market cap goes to 100 million, which is possible, but you know, and we're not waiting for that to happen. We might be able to raise just on debt with our own equity. I think, you know, I think we probably accept that at the moment, without a significant appreciation, we need a strategic partner, or we'll need to get more equity in 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 order to finance the project. We're going to have to write contracts. It's not going to be one or two contracts. We're going to have to enter into enough contracts for a bank to be able to say hey, we'll lend you the rest on the strength of those contracts. Now, the amount they'll lend to us, the debt equity ratio, that depends on the price we write and the, you know, the credence that a bank gives to that offtake contract with a nuclear utility. And that's one of the reasons why we're so heavily um, centered on US utilities, because they have the balance sheet and the reputation of um, complying with the law, that means that banks will will give them a very high rating. So I can't tell you how much will be necessary. Obviously, what we don't want to do is write everything into long-term contract at, at prices that just just enough to get us into production and then leave no upside. But it, it'll all depend on the price we're able to secure, the attitude of the bank to, to the leverage, and the volume we're able to secure. So, I mean, in the dream world, we, you know, we write, I don't know, two million, two million pound a year of contracts at 55, and the banks finance us on that, and we have the rest available to, to give us some upside when the price goes even higher. Um, but who knows? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, our, our job is to, 
secure the contracts and then enough to be able to go away and, and with the equity providers and the debt providers negotiate something that, that gives everybody a win. And I don't think I can be any more specific than that for you. As far as the pricing goes, I mean, you guys basically are, are definitely wanting 50 plus and then I suspect the type of contract would be a floor with some kind of uh, escalation as well, or initially for the financing, just a base floor contract. And then are you guys looking at other options as far as royalty streaming type transactions as part of a debt financing, equity financing? What options are on the table on that side? If you guys can be 50% anticipated nameplate, that that's probably a pretty good place to start and leave some optionality on the upside of the price. Yeah, let me just wind back and disaggregate that a bit. Um, the price. We did a DFS. The DFS refresh, we used $55 a pound, and that gave us an NPV of sort of, you know, 400 million US dollars thereabouts. In the current market, we know we can't, we can't bid $55. It's just out of the money. So, yeah, around 50 in the current environment, the utilities are very keen on fixed prices, maybe with an escalator. They're not keen on the upside that, that could leave them exposed if the, if the price goes up a lot. So we work with them and say, well, okay, you know, we also understand that for some of them, they're looking at the forward curve and they're, they're looking at us going, well, you want, let's say, 50, but we can't justify 50 for 2024, but we can for to 2026, 2027. And so we try and work out something that at the end of the day gives us if you're, something that's bankable at a price that, that means that there's something in it for our shareholders. So, I, I mean, I can't give you a single price or a single structure because we work with the US utilities and we try and find out what fits them best and fits us best. Yeah, look, we're, we're looking at the high 40s, the low 50s. It's not there yet because they're getting offers lower than that at the moment. So we're going to have to wait until the market, the price that people are bidding into long-term contracts has gone up a bit from where it is. But again, let me just give you some perspective as the way I see it. And, and I said, I, I come at this as an economist. Look, when the spot price is at 30, it's difficult to get the utilities to want to pay more than 40 for long-term contracts. The spot price is a strange beast. But at the end of the day, most of the utilities want long-term contracts and most mining companies want to sell under long-term contract because they've got to finance their projects. You know, when you look at Cameco's approach to when they're going to switch back on MacArthur River, it's like, well, they, they haven't been definitive about the price, but they have been definitive about the fact that it's they're not going to be guided by the spot price. They, they're guided by the long-term contract price. They want long-term contract prices at a level that justifies switching back on MacArthur. And, and I, I understand that's somewhere between $40 and $50, but uh, I don't think they've ever been specific about where it is in that range. Now, I when we did our original DFS, I looked at what I thought would be the long-term price for contract pricing over the life of the project. And, and my background, as I said, as an economist, I work for industry, when you work for the aerospace industry or the oil industry, they're, they're often interested in 20-year forecasts. So I try to come at it from that perspective as like, never mind what the price is now, where do you think the contract price will settle over the long term? 
And, and I arrived at the conclusion that when you look at the structure of the market, you've got Kazatomprom and Cameco that control a significant amount of production. And, and if you throw in Arano as well, not ownership, but actually controlling the operations, you're getting up to sort of 75, 80% of global production. Those companies would rationally um, want, when the price goes up, to not switch on their production. They'd rather have the increase in price flow through to their bottom line. But what they don't want to do is for the price to go up so much that big competitors are encouraged into production. And so when I did the DFS, we set the, that level at about $65. So that was the original DFS. I think we've come to the conclusion that it's that it's likely to be a bit lower than that now. Um, but, but certainly we, we think there's a ceiling price. So the price will go to a certain level and then the Cameco's and the Kazatomproms and the Iranos of this world will turn up the production as much as they can from their existing assets and from their development projects and not want to see the price go above a certain level, let's say 60. I can't tell you what that level is for them. It's just my assessment as economist is, okay, you, you know, you, you, you want to see the price go up. So when prices start going up, they won't turn up production. They'll, they'll have the benefit to their bottom line, but at some point you'll turn up the production. Now, but over the longer term, I think there's, there's such a structural shortage coming that maybe that 55 that we used in the DFS is probably a bit conservative, but I think it's the long-term price is going to be somewhere between 50 and 70, probably. Yeah, great. And good points about the uh, the capacity. Just because at a promise, chemical, if they are able to obtain full nameplate across all their projects, still won't be enough. There's still deficit in the market. And of course, as you know, to get the nameplate across all of their projects, that'll be two years from the starting point. So very interesting time frame and the bottleneck factor that we have in front of us here. Let's talk about just kind of the remaining challenges, Julian. Besides the finance and construction, what lessons uh, have been learned with advancing a company and project at this point? And, and what do you see really outside of finance and construction as any remaining challenges? Look, <laughs> I think that's a, that's a really difficult one to answer. That, I mean, the remaining challenges, I'll be absolutely clear, the remaining challenges is managing managing our cash until uh, we can write the contracts. If, if I've learned one thing from being with Vimy for the last seven years, hindsight is a, is a wonderful thing. <laughs> we didn't have any choice but to push through and get the environmental approvals in a hurry because I want to be clear, when I say in a hurry, I don't mean they were rushed. I just meant we, we knew we had three years to get them in and it was essential that we got them in the three years and we did. In the absence of, if you like, the, the political problem that we perceived as likely to happen when there was a change of government, which which there was, and, and they so they actually in Western Australia, they introduced a, a ban on any new projects. They just allowed the existing projects that got their approvals to go through. So we got through on that. If it hadn't have been for that, we would have probably gone slower because it was the market signals weren't there. I mean, we, we all thought that they... Uranium price recovery was coming. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever been, I mean, I, I've been an economist, I've been forecasting and forecasting for, for companies for a really long time. I think the most wrong I've been on any forecast 
has been the speed with which Japanese reactors will come back to market. I put on my economist hat and I said, you know, you when you've got $200 billion worth of assets sitting there, stopped for no obvious reason, surely they're going to find a way to bring them back in. Surely with that amount of capacity out of the market, the Japanese will will struggle and will have to bring them back in. But but they managed and they switched very few of them back on. And I just, I, I mean, I got just got that completely wrong. I've been disappointed with the speed with which the Chinese have built out their program. They made um, very strong suggestions about how many they were going to build in what sort of time frame, and then haven't met them. And f- for lots of reasons. And unfortunately, you can't get behind the politics of what's going on there. I think it's got a, it, it's not to do with them not being committed to nuclear. And it's not it's got nothing to do with um, them not being able to build them or anything else. It's it's just that they put in place a program that was basically based around Westinghouse's AP1000. There's been some technical problems with that. There's a host of argument about whether they should use imported technology or Chinese homegrown technology. And then with the delays because of Fukushima and a whole lot of other things, including the pump failures on the uh, on the you know the can motor for the for the AP1000 that set them back a couple of years. The indigenous technologies kind of caught up and they've grafted a bit of that onto their own design. And I think this it's caused a delay. So so I thought they would be building the inland program by now. Um, I, ca- I can remember in 2017, 2018, the Chinese guy saying to me, oh, no, I, we don't think the inland program is going to start till 2020. And I can remember thinking, oh, you know, why would it take them that long? But here we are near the end of 2020. They haven't started their inland program. Now, I think they have the capacity to catch up when they when they finally implement that program. So, so you've got a disappointing Japanese, disappointed Chinese. So that that element of demand, which was quite significant, hasn't hasn't kicked in yet. And so we'd had this chat six years ago in 2014, and you know I'd be saying to you, oh look, you know the price is going to go up, and it's going to go up soon, but I can't tell you when. But I can tell you, I'm sure it will have gone up by 2017, I'd be saying. And people will be saying, well, really? You think it's going to take till 2017? Well, here we are in 2020, and and it still hasn't got back to the level. So when, when I first joined Vimy, or EMA as it was then known, you know, the spot, the spot price and the long-term price were both on their way down. But they, they were in the 40s, and the long-term contract price was in the 50s. And we all thought it was going to turn around soon. I just feel a bit like a scratch record sitting here all this time later going, yeah, it's going to go up soon, but it will. We're hanging in there. And, you know, when I say with the benefit of hindsight, I wish we could have done things slower and conserved our money. But by the same token, we didn't have any choice. We had to get the approvals as quickly as we did. We'd taken the decision to to keep going and hope the market would would recover. And, And I think we're nearly there. And, you know, it's kind of it's a bit of a knuckle ride, but but we're we're hoping that uh, the price will recover next year enough for us to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel and sign those contracts. And I've got to say, I think that once those contracts are signed, once the first one gets signed, if it's a quality utility in the U.S. that signs on the dotted line with us, I think then the floodgates will open. That 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 fear of missing out will will overwhelm those who at the moment don't want to write contracts with a uranium developer just in case they don't get in production. 
You know, I think that signing on the dotted line by a blue chip utility in the US will wake everybody up and go, oh, well, if they're writing a contract with them, these guys must be able to get into production. And it's like it's fear of missing out. They'll all want to write a contract with us and, and we'll be away to the races. That's that's my hope. But the price has got to get up to a level where we can write that first contract. Let's see what happens. And I think Russia's probably been the only one that have really kept most of their promises. But I think we're at the acceleration stage where I think China is certainly uh, wrapping up those uh, construction efforts completion efforts. Japan is putting forth efforts recently to uh, continue their restarts. And, you know, Russia is doing a pretty dang good job of keeping their programs going. And look, I've got to say, it may be contentious, but I, I actually think that they, the French are going to eventually come back to nuclear and, and get rid of this kind of ridiculous notion that they're going to phase down their nuclear fleet till it's only supplying 50% of their electricity. I mean, Macron has been really, really careful. If you listen to actually what he says, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're committed to going to 50%, providing it won't increase our carbon emissions. And it's like, oh, but it will. Yeah, everywhere in the world, every, I, I, I'm pretty sure everywhere in the world where a nuclear power plant has been switched off, it has resulted in an increase in emissions. And so I yeah. just don't see how the, anybody thinks the French can close down nine or 10 nuclear reactors and not push up their emissions. And basically Macron said, um, yeah, we'll go to 50% providing it doesn't increase emissions. He knows, I know, and most analysts should realize that that is a clear signal that he's got no intention of switching them off. Yeah, it is a bit silly. And it would be nice to see France come back out and compete in the global stage for nuclear turnkey like Russia is right now. Uh, Russia's leading that by a long shot. The U.S. is trying to make some efforts, but pretty silly efforts at this point. And look, stop trying to change the technology. Stop tweaking the engine. Stick with what works. And we have proven technology that already works. There's good PWR designs out there that work fantastic. Stop screwing with the designs and just stick with something that works. And so it'd be nice to see the French come back into the global market as well. And, you know, the other part to what you said earlier, this sector will teach you patience. The natural resource sector will teach you patience, extreme patience. And if you haven't figured out patience yet, you probably shouldn't be in the sector. But I can tell you that uh, the natural resource sector will come with a lot of hard lessons. We've got a great situation here where we have acceleration coming on the nuclear side. And we're right at the end of a broken supply chain and how that gets recapitalized, Julian, going forward. That question will get answered and it'll probably be answered in the next couple of years. I believe it was Mike just on the financing frontier before we move on to just a few final things to wrap up. I believe it was Mike that mentioned there was some meetings and discussions with Bacchus Capital out of the UK. What happened there and is something still in the works regarding financing participation? We talk to everybody all of the time. I'm not aware of any current discussions going on with backers. So, yeah, look, I don't think they're a dark horse waiting to pounce and provide finance for us, but we're, everything's on the table. I mean, we'll, we'll take whatever will get this project in production. The preferred route is not selling royalties attached to uranium streams or anything like that. It, it's, you know, at the moment, it's centered on conventional finance. On the exploration project in Alligator River region, any updates on there? And you guys do have a JV with Rio Tinto on one of the projects. Is that still correct? Yeah, but look, Rio Tinto is most obviously on their way out of uranium. So what happened was that this ground was held by Cameco originally. 
Rio was interested in, in farming into it. They, they wrote a farming agreement. They paid for a whole lot of exploration and then changed their mind. And I don't think they changed their mind because of the quality of the asset. They changed their mind because they've decided to get out of uranium. So, so they, they already have the, the Ranger mine, which they, they own effectively own through ERA. Um, and that is going to cease production in about three weeks' time. Um, and then they're going to have to spend five years rehabilitating at a huge cost. They've sold out of their assets in, in Namibia. So basically, Rio is going to be just completely out of the business. And it, it obviously doesn't make sense for them to have a in their portfolio a kind of exploration development project in, in Australia. Um, so they haven't contributed to that joint venture that was with Cameco and is now with us for the last couple of years. And so if you if you track them, their, their percentage in that JV has gone down from 25 to 22 or or thereabouts. Sorry, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on the figures because we've spent money on exploration and they've chosen not to match that. So they've been diluted down. I'm hopeful at the end of the day that we'll be able to not get them out, but, but buy out their share at some point because they're just not interested in, in it. But as I, I, again, I've got to stress, it's, I, I don't think it's because they don't think it's very good. It's just that they, they're not interested in uranium. And sorry, I hope I'm not going over time or anything, but people, you know, they, they hear Northern Territory, all Rio, all, you know, difficulty with indigenous people and all the rest of it. Rio's operations are in, in, in a different, a very slightly different part of the country, different people. So the area where we are, before we got that, Cameco was there. They set up a good relationship with the local people. We've come in. We've taken it over. It's working fine. They're happy. They would like to see the mine developed. Um, no problems. No problems whatsoever on there with the local Aboriginal people. None whatsoever. Um, they are supportive, and of course they they want the, the royalty and they want the jobs and they want the development. Look, at drilling is. Uh, I mean, it's a great site. We liken it to the Athabasca Basin, and that's not tongue-in-cheek or anything like that. It's the same unconformity underneath it. The only difference between the Athabasca Basin and where we are in Alligator River is it's a bit shallower and there's no lakes. So, so if you find something, you don't have to dig down as deep and you don't have to do any freezing, and that's a, that's a massive reduction in the cost. So um, I think... We we did a we did a very preliminary scoping study on Angularly. It was just a, a decline down to it, and it was less than 100 million to get it into production from from memory. But obviously, we're still looking there. We're 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 doing cheap stuff at the moment. You know, when Vimy gets into production, and we have a revenue, we'll be able to fund proper exploration up there. Because we think there's there's it's it's so prospective up there, um, there's highly likely to be better deposits than the, the small one that we found. We've got a process going with KPMG at the moment to see if anybody else wants to come in. Um, we perhaps we will be in eventually. We'll get Rio out and get another partner in who wants to farm in and fund the development, and and we'll find another Jabaluka. Um, but you know that's all for the future. We we. At the moment, my focus, at least, is on is on Mulga Rock. It's an interesting trend seeing the majors go away, 
But uh, I wonder what the majors will do when the price is much higher and how that starts to look attractive. Again, I suspect that there'll be some re-examining of their views when the uranium price is much higher. We've seen that type of stupidity happen in other resource sectors as well, where uh, all of a sudden there's a frantic rampage and things get overpaid for, et cetera. It'll be interesting to see what they do with Jabaluka because that's a fantastic asset. The region is a fantastic perspective region in Australia, arguably probably the best. So Jabaluka, it'd be interesting to see if they hold that to liquidate later or how they handle that one. It's a nice deposit. Well, Julian, just one other question here before we wrap up. I'm trying to get them through here. It doesn't look like we'll really get all the questions answered. But on the currency side, if you guys get into production and contracts are signed, Will you guys plan to stick with the U.S. dollar denominated contracts or will there be other currencies? I mean, obviously, most of the stuff we've seen has always been in the U.S. dollar. Any thoughts on different currencies? Yeah, look, highly likely stroke inevitable that um, the contracts will be written in U.S. dollars. I I mean, obviously, it depends on the client. And, you know, let me be clear, we wouldn't be averse to writing euro contracts with European customers if if that's what they wanted. but I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the currency. I mean, we we our DFS was done, I don't know, around 70, 68 cents. We're, we just went up above 75. I think that's a temporary phenomenon, a lot driven by the, the just the iron ore revenue that's that's just flooding into the country. You know, the, I think the price of iron ore, I'm, I'm not sure what it is today, but it's around $160 a tonne. And that's like... So, so to give you some perspective, where, where as an economist, where do I think the iron ore price will end up eventually? Somewhere around $60, $65 a tonne would seem a reasonable long-term forecast. You know, so the iron ore price is a long way up and, and Australia's sending, you know, and I, it's such a big number, people can't get their head around this. It's sending 800 million tonnes of iron ore out through the ports of Northwest Australia. So, you know, it's not surprising the Aussie dollar is staying up. We've got a robust mining sector. It's exporting and, and notwithstanding, and I don't know how much you follow it, the way the Chinese are kind of sanctioning Australia by banning or putting tariffs on imports to China from Australia, the barley, wine, a whole lot of products they haven't touched iron or they need it. And, you know, for all the reduction in exports from Australia as a result of that, trade discrimination against Australia by the Chinese, our exports are actually going up to China because of the price of iron ore. So it's not surprising that our our dollar is going to stay high. Um, And look, the iron ore is going to stay high for probably another couple of years. And when it goes back down again, that's when the dollar will go back down again. So I'm not unhappy with the 68 cents or 70 cents that we use for our DFS. Because by the time we get into production, that's where I think the exchange rate will be. We're still expecting a big chunk of our exports, will, we expect, will be going to the U.S. utilities. You know, having written a whole lot of contracts in U.S. dollars, uh, as I said, you know, I mean, if the French suddenly decide that they want to write a big strategic contract with us, and but the condition is it's in euros, we're writing one in euros with them. But, but right now, I... I said, I, 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 we, we don't have plans for anything other than U.S. dollar denomination. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And the Canadian dollar, Australian dollar, I think that there'll be some interesting times ahead for those two currencies as this resource bull market continues forward here. 
Well, what do you say to potential new and even existing investors about Vimy at this stage and at current price levels? Well, <laughs> look, in all seriousness, at least when you compare us to our peers on, all, on almost any metric, we're undervalued. We're at the stage in the cycle where we're still all suffering. All of us are suffering from the long price doldrums. We've seen a bit of recovery recently. And look, when the uranium price goes up, they're all going to go up. I, I, the reason why I say, so the reason why to invest in uranium equities now is because we're close to, to going up and, and you want to get in before it goes. The reason why it's Vimy is because when it goes, we will get into production. And so it's, you know, we're a long-term investment. You don't have to worry about getting out before we go back down again. Um, you look at companies like Unpaladin in the early days, see how their price just kept going up. That's the thesis that we want to present, that we will be getting into production. Uh, and when we do, we'll suddenly be, you know, locking in contracts at prices that justify us staying in production, regardless of what happens to the to the prices. And, and our share price will end, end up reflecting that. So we're a good long-term investment. And Julian, the uh, best way for the audience to reach out to you and the company. Right. So we've got a website. If you want to ask any questions, if there's anything you want to know, drop us an email. The best thing is to send it to info at vimiresources.com.au. If anybody wants regular news from us, um, go to our website, sign up to our mailing list. You can just put yourself on the list and, and you'll get all our mail outs. So just send them to info at vimiresources.com.au. They'll be looked at straight away. Sometimes it takes a couple of days to respond. Sometimes you get a response in a couple of hours. I mean, we're very good in that sense. Well, Julian, it's been great. I appreciate you taking the time to come on and introduce Vimy Resources uh, to our audience for the first time. You know, good luck out there and, and keep up the efforts. Well, thank you. It's been very enjoyable. I look forward to getting questions from people who want some answers. <laughs>